Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to welcome you to tonight's event with sculptor Conrad Shawcross, who is the youngest current Royal Academician here at the RA and responsible for this year's stunning summer exhibition courtyard installation, which is titled The Dappled Light of the Sun. His recent works include Timepiece, a spectacular mechanical light sculpture at the Roundhouse in Camden, ADA Project, a robotic installation inspired by Ada Lovelace at the Vinyl Factory in 2014, and a new series of sculptures which were unveiled in Dulwich Park this April. Joining Conrad in conversation tonight is Reverend Dr Richard Davey, who is the coordinating chaplain at Nottingham Trent University and a visiting fellow in their School of Art and Design. His PhD looked at the role of faith in the work of a group of selected contemporary artists, and he continues to write extensively on artists including Tess Geray and Anselm Kiefer for the Royal Academy, as well as writing the essay for this year's summer exhibition, Illustrated Catalogue. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Conrad Shawcross and Richard Davey. Thank you, Amy. It's a real pleasure to be here interviewing Conrad. I was asked to meet and interview Conrad about a month, two months ago, when asked to do the summer exhibition and came across his work and talked about his work, The Dapper Light of the Sun. Through that conversation, other avenues and areas of interest emerged. So the conversation this evening is one which in a sense, is there to unpack and explore and further develop some of those ideas which started to emerge with the original conversation. But first of all, many congratulations about the amazing um, Dapper Light of the Sun out in the courtyard, which I think can't fail to have an impact on those who come to it. And as, long, as well as that, um, there's a show at Victoria Mirror at the moment. There's your works still in Dulwich Park, and also at Roche Court in Wiltshire. So there's a lot of your work around, which is wonderful, so people can get a sense of what you're trying to do. Can I begin with Dapper Light of the Sun? And what I want to begin with are these, which it looks fairly mad at the moment, but (laughs) that's Newark, which is near me up in Nottingham, but tetrahedrons, tell me about tetrahedrons. Well, they're uh, essentially the, the rule of this piece, the sort of dogma of this piece, is that it, it's entirely composed of tetrahedrons. There are about five sizes of tetrahedrons, so they all um, nest inside each other. When There's about 24,000 triangles, which make up around 8,000 tetrahedrons in the piece. And all of the tetrahedrons, it's very efficient, because they all nest inside each other. But they're sort of, so they all, they're like a Russian dolls inside, inside one, one inside the other. Um, so those are those are some of the the sort of a sketch of the thing, and then there's a there's a truncated one which allows a, and the mating of a smaller tet onto the larger one. So there's a, I mean essentially it's I wanted to choose a brick, and I've been thinking about the tetrahedron for years, maybe 12 years or something involved in it as an I conceptually and geometrically, and um, I suppose the starting point was to try and find a brick in which you were going to start to build a structure, a sort of a cellular repeating structure and. And um, unlike, sort of like a Solowit or a Carl Andre, 
you chose uh, a literal brick or the solar wit toes sort of cube. Um, it's a way of repeating a form and growing something using uh, a rule and a sort of constraint. And I, I was really attracted to the tetrahedron because it was the, it's the symbol, it's the simplest of the platonic solids. So it's this on its own. I have one in my bag here that I thought I'd, but I just, this is, um, this is one of the sort of, um, sort of uh, the seed, if you like. This is actually made of, it's the offcut in the center of the, of the center of all these concentric triangles is this solid piece that remains. And so it's the piece that, anyway, we've, we welded up a few like this, it's this, but this is kind of like the seed, if you like, of the whole thing, and it's it's such a rational. It's essentially a three-sided pyramid. When people ask me what is a tetrahedron, and I don't have one to hand, you you can describe it. You can describe it as a three-sided pyramid, essentially. So instead of a square base, it has, and it's such a symbol of order and rationale and symmetry and just. But is it rational because it's basically perverse and that it doesn't well uh, yeah so we'll get on to that so but on its own it <laughs> on its own it feels like this um this rational sort of ordered thing. Yeah. rational thing you put on the table and it's it's just it just feels i don't know it it just but the minute you start putting them together then the real problems start yeah. because the, it is this irrational non-repeating uh form that basically the, the geometry is such that it basically never it doesn't tessellate with itself. So a brick or spoons in a drawer will tessellate, and that's why bricks are used in buildings, yeah. is because they work and they, they fit together. Whereas this has never been used in a building before because it's, it, work. It, it doesn't work, and it's, um, it's very beguiling, and it's irrational. There is one, and then over the years, we've sort of discovered different properties, and, but there is one rule where it forms this triple helix, if you put them together, which yeah. is sort of the, the real sort of... Um, it's the crux of a lot of these larger works I've made recently, and it's been a sort of really interesting phenomenon that we've been exploiting a lot. But, but one of the problems so with the tetrahedron, what, what happens is you start adding a tet to the sides. You, you can grow out in each direction, and then you can add another set. So you add, first you add four, and then you add, then you add 12, and then you keep going. And the rule is you basically can't hit, it, hit yourself, so you've got to keep growing outwards, bifurcating and bifurcating and moving out towards, sort of in a radiant way. So it's, it's unlike a, um, it, it's essentially this sort of expansionist form. It's, and we were looking at many different sort of structures for, for kind of guidance in this. We, were, we really weren't, weren't want, not wanting to make a literal tree or uh, something that was too, um, too representational, too easy to define. So I hope, and I, I purposefully use different nouns to describe it. Yep. So I describe it as clouds, as trees, as we've looked at neural pathways in the brain. We looked at lots of crystalline forms and structures like ice and things, but they're not really um, appropriate because they form a kind of, like a fabric. They're strong structural materials. They form these sort of basic, like a sheet of, um, of woven uh, sort of molecules or uh, the connections. They form a very tight bond, whereas this one, is structurally, um, and I don't know, if, is Pete here? Is he, is he here yet? Oh, there he is, there he is. So Pete, Pete is my, um, my very loyal, uh, loyal, exhausted, exhausted engineer. engineer. So he has a company called Structure Workshop. And so this, um, this is, um, so one of, the, one of the problems with it is it's structurally, you start and you can't then rely on anything but where you started from. So it's these branches. So it's very similar to a tree and it has obviously huge echoes with natural forms. I think that's, that's what really interests me, because on one level, it's metal. It's like a big boy's kind of 
heavy kind of, mm. just to show you a picture, it's kind of involves welding and it involves mm. um, fire and sparks and kind of macho kind of image. And, and that comes across in some ways with that, mm. with the work and with quite a lot of your work. It's, it, it feels quite macho. It has that kind of sense of solidity and it has its metal and soldering and so on. Not to say that those are mm. necessarily male attributes, but yeah. it has that kind of quality. I think, I think one of the things with this is that we, we've, we've been considering this piece for years, Pete and I and, and my studio, and it's been a piece that's evolved into many different incarnations. Mm. And one of the problems with it is the sheer number of parts just was a sort of insurmountable task. And, and we've, we've looked at different ways of making it out of aluminium extrusion and out of, out of stainless steel and yeah. different ways of trying to reduce the sheer amount of work. And this, I think, is the quickest way to make it, but there is still... 12 man years of welding in this piece. I mean, so one person would have taken 12 years to make it's, it. It's mad. It would have been a heartbreaking job. <laughs> um, but, um, but, um, but luckily, that, that can quickly change. If you've got 12 people, you can sort of quickly concertina that time. Um, so, so you've got all these qualities, and it, it, it's manners, and it's, it's work, and so on. But as you hinted, and this is what really fascinates me about the work, you then put it together, and something else takes place. So you start to see these angles, these triangles, become curves in, mm -hmm. in the shadows. And up above, there's like a, a helix. You get curves there which match the clouds. And you get these areas here of curves. Mm -hmm. and, and like a tree, like leaves on a tree in the shadows. And, and suddenly it moves from being metal and man-made and manufactured and engineering and all that you need to think about in putting together these tets and how they might work into something very different. It becomes organic. And what I love is, is this drawing here. And it reminds me of a fern frond unfolding mm -hmm. and, and a sense of something all like an animal claw. It moves from the mechanical into yeah. the organic and no, the natural. And I think it's, it, there is some, some really sort of profound geometry in here, which is, of course, it sort of seems very fundamental to a lot of um, these sort of natural occurring things. And this, this sort of drawing or, this, or the, the claw that we refer to it as this, is this, um, I mean, it's very sort of like a Robert Smithson or something. It's got a very, there's a sort of very beautiful sort of fractal nature to it. Absolutely. And we've really tried to, and the stuff that's been really painstaking, we made many, many prototypes, which basically the decay rate, so with Pete again, we... Not only Pete helps me with the engineering, the sort of this the sort of mind-numbing kind of irrational stuff where it's sort yeah. of trying to get these branches to yeah. work and have to consider whether a van reverses into it, all these sort of terrible sort of things. And how do you hell do you quantify these sort of forces? Yeah. And, but anyway, aside from that, we we do these sort of painstaking kind of studies of proportion, not not only the proportion of the the length the length of it to the width to the thickness but also the the rate at which it decays so how big this one is to this one to this one to this one to this one so all of the things we made we made sort of dozens of of studies and prototypes to get to the Absolutely. exact sweet spot of what works because it's one of these things you get one of these off it just doesn't have the the it doesn't feel it just doesn't it loses all of it and, and that's really what, that's what i love is that people may not inter see your work initially as something other than, as I said, 
you know, kind of very engineered and structured, and yet it's about it feels right, and it's what yeah. takes over when, in a sense, mm -hmm. the art and the visual takes over. And and what and another nice, really nice thing is that you can't you can't you can't know that on the computer because you when you make something, it's a little bit like the Albertian um, facade. The Albertian facade isn't, it looks square, but yeah. actually it's not. Absolutely. And there is, there is distortion, which has been put in because the eye, even though it's an incredible instrument, it creates an illusion that it's small at the top unless you make it bigger at the top. Mm. And even your eye compensates, but it's still, in order to make something look right, you've got to make it wrong. And it, with these, the, 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 um, the relationship of proportion isn't linear. It's not what you would expect no. it to be. So when we did the first sort of stuff, where we make a linear relation of length to width to height to all that thing, it's just in it castings normally, it didn't look right. So we just fudged it in the end to when the eye to make the eye look right to, to the eye. So Absolutely, it's, it's a sort of interesting kind of compensation that you make that isn't actually rational or logical. It reminds me of a an artist who's based in Northumbria and who's been in the summer exhibition before called James Huguenin, who does these mad grids. It takes him a year to paint these paintings, which are grids of um, silver point um, grids with then a colour in each. And like you, numbers for each telling you what colour is going where and, and the way it works. And, and it's precise until the end when it doesn't quite work and he has to fudge it. And that's when you get these ripples like sand, you know, kind of wind-blown sand on the beach where water's kept in the hollows and so on. And it's that same feel here of you put the process in, but it doesn't quite work at the end, and what you get is, is the organic. And that seems to me at the very heart yeah. of your work is this balance between the mechanical and design and the organic and unplanned and the two-held intention, as it were. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, there is, I hope, well, I'm glad there is. I mean, it's one of, the, one of the dangers with this problem, I think one of the things that's helped also by the materials and this declared well down the edge is that a lot of the other way of doing it, making it in, riveting it, riveting, riveting it together in lots of sort of laser-cut components or something or using uh, an extrusion with a chamfer, it, just, it was going to become too cold and too designy. And I think one of the yeah. things, though, even though it is very designed, is the materiality and the, and the handmadeness of the material really, um, really uh, takes it out, it? Uh, get away from that again. And I think the, the other thing is that the piece, even though we've been working on it for many years, it was very much, I asked the, I asked the Royal Academy for the opportunity to propose an idea. And this one, as opposed to a sort of totemic object placed in the courtyard, was the thing that I was most um, intrigued about trying to make work. Yeah. And, the, and the materials in relation to the buildings was incredibly important that it had this quite earthy, against the earthy sort of gritty sort of field against the Portland stone and but also in some ways and we can come on to it later but mm. it's the it's the classical environment that allows this thing to 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 uh, breathe, to isn't breathe it? Absolutely. To, it's the contrast to the man-made because it because it doesn't in even though it is very man-made it feels incredibly natural. And and you get that. I I love this drawing where you've got the the process and then you have the circles and it, it's like it's like looking at a tree or, or flowers or leaves or... Mm. It's a spiral, organic spiral at the top. Mm. And, and that can often be forgotten. Or people think immediately metal, soldering, and don't look at the organic nature. This is a drawing that I did with, with Pete. I've actually drawn over one of Pete's beautiful models here, which is 
um, just to sort of sketch the the ideas. But it's, this is the sort of one of the first sort of seal in plan. Yeah. And you get this sort of crystal. So it's actually a 3D drawing that's yeah. just taken from plan. But you get this really crystalline sort of feel to it. I mean, it could be it could be a, a sort of a, a crystal. Or it could be a. a um, I mean, so hope, hopefully, it zings between many different interpretations of what it could be. And the, uh, yeah, and the, exci the exciting thing is that there's so, or slightly daunting as well. There's so many different rules in which how you can grow it, and we've just sort of we're just sort of tip of the iceberg in terms of this new system, all the variables, and some. I mean, it's really because this one actually grows out in more of, in quite a horizontal plane, yeah. and it grows upwards like a plant looking for the light. But you could make a completely radiant one. Which wouldn't need the, um, but this has got this almost like the flat level underneath it where the tripods, so it's like a cloud, a sort of nimbus. So underneath it's flat, and on the top it's sort of um, kind of uh, more um, voluminous and sort of. And, and uh, yeah, so it's cloud, it's trees, it, and as a sculptor you have to go underneath it, and then your view is totally changed, and and you see see this thing almost walking towards you, and kind of. Engaging with you, as you say, and I want. And again, this was one of the sort of starting points. Was this this idea that we've all that is sort of a universal experience of sitting underneath a tree in the summer and um, the sounds and and the the light, the dappled light of the sun. And I I don't know. The phrase came very quick early on in the project a few months ago, and it was one of those sort of titles that usually you struggle for a title and a yeah. way for get it to to not sort of do something like. I mean, it'd be called like Tetra, Tetra. Tetra Cloud or something that's really something terrible, sort of, which would be the normal sort of title and it wouldn't it'd be fine, but it would just be a bit kind of macho and a bit sort of boring. But this, this one where it refers to the effect that it has is, is um, I really, I'm really pleased with it. As a and what's really important for me is when you see the work in place is that interrelationship between the physical work and, and the shadows and it becomes almost the shadows are part of the work yeah. itself and, and give it that kind of, again, they're not always there because depending on what the light's like and the sun mm. and so on, and coming all, through this I afternoon, mean, it, yeah. they weren't really there. And I think, but I think one of the things also, the shadows are almost more readable than the form itself. Yeah. And that's what, the, the shadows aren't two-dimensional. They're three-dimensional, but they're almost like, um, they show this much more clearly and you get a sense of the object absolutely more clearly than you do from the object itself yeah so there's something one of one of the um one of the things that i suppose that i like about the idea of the this inference of a shadow and the shadow referring to an object is this um i made this piece called slow arc inside a cube which was um this space it's a light that moves very slowly from yeah. one side of a cube to another and it creates this inverted shadow of a cube in a room um, but it was inspired by this quotation from Dorothy Hodgkin, who was a scientist working in the last century, and she pioneered a process called crystal radiography, yep. in which she um, she uh, worked out the protein, um, this, the, this, this kind of protein cloud of, of pig insulin. And it was this incredibly complex protein cloud, mm. but she was essentially, a, in very layman's terms, essentially like shining light through crystals and seeing the shadows on the wall of what they create. But she described the process as like trying to work out the structure of a tree by only seeing its shadow, which is kind of quite a lovely Plato's cave analogy, but it's also very Absolutely, humble. Yeah. Very humble. It's like we all sat under that tree. So it's very accessible, but it also just implies that you're never going to work out that tree. You might glimpse parts of it, but it's through a glass darkly. It's, 
It's a sort of, it's, a, it's quite, it's a humble quote, a sort of phrase that we'll, you'll never be understand all the bark and all the twigs and all the ants, no. all the micro, our intracosm is on that tree. But we'll get, a, we'll get close, but not really ever. And I, I want to come to that later because I think that is a fundamental part of your, of your work, that sense of formlessness. Then moving a sense from that sense of the trees, suddenly this work, which is the work in Dulwich Park, which is still there, yeah, they're there forever. They're still there forever, yeah, they're, yeah. replacing a Barbara Hepworth mm. sculpture. What fascinates me, as well as these actually really relate to the trees and the organic and natural, is another element of your work, which again is both very visible and fundamental to your work, but also often highly overlooked. And that's the space, that's the whole mm -hmm. which the solid material of the work mm -hmm. contains. Mm -hmm. What is it about space and that whole which fascinates you? Well, I mean, I think I, think, I suppose this, this piece, I mean, there's obviously a link that, that should be mentioned to, obviously, to Hepworth and her sort of lifelong investigation, preoccupation mm. with the whole, and I did want to have a subtle nod to her yeah. piece, and I suppose one of, one of the first things when I was doing research into the work and how I was going to respond to not only the part but also to this legacy of this, this difficult thing to potentially replace a piece mm. of, of such sort of fame and, and respect. But I think it's one of the things I remember seeing a photo of a kid in looking through, just sort of climbing through the yeah. hole of the Hepworth. And it was, quite a, it was quite a small work. It was quite a formal work. It was on a plinth and it was a... But apparently the kids, and I watched the kids in the park, and it was, it's not a very, it doesn't have a lot of um, sort of ch ch children's infrastructure in the park. No. There's some great, they have these renter bikes and things, but there's not, it's a bit, it's a bit impoverished for sort of kids, things for kids to do. But they were just, even a little lamppost, the kids would just run around this lamppost and just make play out of the most simple, limited things. And it was just, and I suppose in terms of creating a hole or a space in which you enter, and I wanted to really create an, uh, the opposite of a civic sculpture, but one that would invite tactility and play. And, and, and I've got slightly more than I bargained for, because literally, I mean, this is quite an, this is quite a, a, an a extreme moment in that there isn't, there's only one kid on this thing. Yeah. But there's, there's, usually, there's usually about between 20 and 30 children on <laughs> each, on all of, on, well, between them, on, on about 10 on each. So sort of they become incredibly um, climbable things to, which are being really used which is fantastic and I wanted that to, to happen I just didn't expect it to be quite as extreme as, as it is as <laughs> but, um, but it's great it's, as um, you say there's not, there's not much in Dulwich um, Park what, what really interests me and it, it's going in a different direction but I think is there in your work and, and in a sense we see it here but in a sense, it's hinted at here because they're based on music. Is that that hole feels like a space? It feels like a gap, an empty. But in effect, it's solid. It's solid with atoms. And but going back to the tetrahedron, the tetrahedron was the symbol for yeah. the atom in in in, in Greek mm. thinking. And music travels because the space between us. Mm -hmm. isn't empty but has atoms and photons and molecules yeah. which vibrate and are points of connection. And so these holes, this space, contains not emptiness but actual matter. It's, it's a solid but almost mm -hmm. intangible. And that 
seems to come through with that music, the references these, to music. Yeah, and these, these, first, these first pieces were created um, using light originally. So these um, forms were originally, uh, the, and the, I don't know if you, any of you have been to Dan Dulwich Picture Gallery, but like, it came down on Sunday, yeah. but in the mausoleum there was this very fast spinning light piece called Counterpoint. And that was a five to four ratio, and this one's a, sorry, a four to three ratio, and this one's a four to three, and this one's a three to two, and this one's a two to one. But I, Can you explain what you mean by well, that? Well, so they're, they're basically these, um, they're descriptions of, of, of chords or drones, so perpetual chords. And they're called three perpetual chords. But about 15 years ago, I, I was really interested in, I'd been reading about string theory, and yeah. so I was, and I, I'm, not a, I'm not an academic, really. I, I, just, I, I glean a lot of ideas, and I, I um, but I, I remember reading about string theory, and I was reading about harmonics. And I sort of had this idea that, okay, a particle isn't a particle, it's a loop. And so I was thinking about that, and so I, I just uh, I created a very kind of rickety wooden machine hmm. in my bedroom, and, and it was a two-to-one ratio on the end. So it was an oct in music, that's the octave. So it's yep. basically playing a middle C and then the C above it. So you get double the it's one. It's a two-to-one ratio of their of their frequencies. Yep. Whereas a and then the fifth is a three-to-two. So it's just it's just the, it's the it's the amalgamation of two sine waves is sine waves of different yep. frequencies to form one. Noisy sine wave. That's yep. a sort of a, a spl uh, which our our brain for some reason finds very pleasing, and when you but then when you represent uh, so what I was trying to do is represent that thing visually, but I had a sort of wonderful eureka moment where I turned on this machine with its light bulb flicking around really fast, and I took a photograph of it, and it looked like a mental machine that didn't look like I mean it was just looked crazy yeah. and quite scary, yeah. but when you took a photograph of it, you got this beautiful sort of a Pringle-like bent uh, form, which is this one here. But I, uh, and I, it was this sort of wonderful moment where you, like, you felt like a scientist sort of, I felt like a scientist of discovering this form. And they're actually in maths, they're called toroidal knots. And, and so in a sense, what you've got here is not just in the space contained here, a kind of container for space, a reminder of emptiness, mm -hmm. but actually in the form itself, you've got a visualization of those kind of yeah. atoms, of photons, mm. of, of things moving through the empty space between us and between yeah. every solid object and actually dancing through the space. And so what feels empty is actually full of this movement and dance and again this um, energy. Yeah. And so your work has that kind of energy contained within it. And I think one of the things, when we did some early um, tests on this, we, we made it in, um, a, the loop was um, the same diameter as it goes around. Yeah. One, of the, one of the things here that is, gives it, I think gives it the energy is that as it goes around, it gets thinner here, and it comes around and it gets fatter here. And it's really fat there, and it's really thin here. And this, 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 this um, diameter of the sausage, is, and it's welded yeah. in these, sort of essentially these sausages yeah. that go around. Um, is, is analogous to how fast the light bulb was rotating when we took a photograph. So like a paintbrush, when you take a photograph of a fast light bulb, it's thin, and when it's, when it's slower, it's fatter, because it's, it's, uh, it's burning into the, into the and photograph. And that, in a sense, relates to colour, because... And painting, or just however far yeah. you paint a brush to it fast, it's thin, yeah. it's slow, it's fatter. And again, Pete, Pete's sort of very... At Structure Workshop has sort of really painstakingly we worked out an equation to, to create that turn that light Superb. bulb into an, a relationship to thickness and sort of create these forms and then all the castings. It's quite laborious because it means all the castings are different, but it's, um, it's really worth it. Coming back to the dappled light, I think there is that relationship between <coughs> the, those works in Dulwich 
and here, where, again, we look at it as, as being, as you say at times, quite solid down the bottom. But it actually, there are moments when you see blue and white and grey contained within those triangles. I described it in the catalogue for the summer exhibition as being like a James Turrell um, sky piece, where you look up and you're forced to look at something which actually is quite empty. It's back to the holes and to formlessness and nothingness again, where you see something and are forced to look at it and concentrate on that. And it holds it and it becomes precious, as it were, um, for that moment. And, and, and I love that, that you've got it within the individual triangles and then the whole piece just seems to hold the sky and pull it down towards it. So it's not just a solid object, but it, it's making what air become solid. And I think the other thing that's really nice is that these, these tripods that, that, that hold it up are very, um, they're very minimal and they're very sort of, they're, they have incredibly slender ankles. As a result of that, instead of, because this thing weighs 25 tons, so it's a massive piece. And when it was on the ground, it, I was worried about it. I mean, it looked very aggressive. It looked like a sort of anti-tank trap. Yeah. And, and I was getting a lot of, because I was there in my hard hat and, a lot of, I was getting a lot of comments from some more conservative <laughs> people in coming to Royal Academy saying, what the hell is this monstrosity? Yeah, yeah. What, who allowed this thing to be in the courtyard? And I, I was a bit worried myself because it was taking up so much space. But the minute we put them up, they just, it is this ascendant sort of thing. And what the hell on those tripods are tetrahedrons, aren't they? Yeah. So, yeah, so, it's, are, so, so, yeah. so the whole thing is this yeah, kind so of atomic, absolutely. But they, but, uh, but due to the sort of, um, and I use the word audacious because it sort of winds yeah, yeah. up a bit. But Pete, Pete's audacious engineering again with the, these very slender, these very slender ankles, and and we were always we were sort of joking, but slightly worried as well because when we were putting them, they are very thin, Pete, and we were, <laughs> but but they, and it was a beautiful moment because you just put them down. They got these universal joints at the top. And they, they just sit down, into they just it. Sit, they, re they sort of locate themselves, and uh, it, it was just um, very nice. But they, but they give because they're so light and they're, they're tapered. And we've got the, and we've been, we just, we have a very creative partnership, which we've gone on for ten years. So it's just, but we just know each other's well, the, the yeah. aesthetic that we want and what I want and how to get it, achieve what we need. Um, but they just, they almost feel like they're tying them down rather than holding them up. I, I hope. It's so like balloons, like they're almost, the string yeah, they're on, like yeah, tethers, string on tethers, tethers rather than, um, than, than legs. That sense of a helium balloon mm. full of gas, um, yeah. invisible gas. Yeah. What I found fascinating then was the show from Roche Court, going back to that way of thinking, where you have the tetrahedrons, you've got a development, a, a, a kind of variation on the dappled light and, mm. and these tetrahedron works, and then you've got these blue... Are they perspex or glass? It's actually stained glass. Stained they're, glass. They're um, hand-rolled glass in there. So it's, um, and, and so suddenly, it's like looking... Yeah, there's the sky contained, mm. that, that piece of blue sky contained within the tetrahedron that we see down there in the courtyard is mm -hmm. the same thing here. This kind of containing the sky, but also containing colour and containing photons of light mm -hmm. and atoms. It's that mm -hmm. sense of containment. Yeah, I mean, these ones are, again, they're, they're based on sort of, um, sort of ancient geometries and radiant geometries. They, um, uh, and they, they have this sort of, sort of centre which you can sort of deduct or infer from the, from the faces. But they're, and they're called plosions, so as in explosion or implosion. Yeah. 
So they, they could be um, expansion or contraction. And they are, um, but they're, they're, again, using these constraints of these rules of, of, um, of very specific um, platonic geometry. Um, I mean, these are really painstaking to make because we, we sort of build up the edge again and again until we get this very sharp edge. Um, so they're very labor intensive. Um, but these, I suppose they're in, in a way, they, they, I'd like to make those. So the reason I've started to put the glass in is just to play around with this idea of them being these internal spaces. So they actually, the idea is to make them big enough to be enterable in. Yeah. So again, on this sort of scale of it being a canopy or a pavilion, it's this sort of, it's taking it to that architectural scale. And we're back to space in these works, which are at Victor uh, Victoria Mo Mirror yeah, at the moment. That's yeah, that's right, yeah. Which are inverted spires and these big, open, empty containers for space, these holes, a bit like the Barbara Hepworth and, and the work in Dulwich. Mm -hmm. and, then I, and then we get these works, which really fascinate me, where you've got the solid facet and the gap, in a sense, between, so you have space still there, but you, you're moving into the solid face, which is the final generation of the tetrahedron in Dappled Light of the Sun, where it's, a, it's not an open tetrahedron, it's a solid one. Mm -hmm. And then you have this, this work, which does something very different. What, what is it about the solid compared well, to the open? The, well, I, I think that, I mean, it, this is, I'm really pleased with this sort of room and the way that it feels, and it sort of it was a lovely opportunity to create all this, this array of work because I really enjoy making a sequence and, and using a sequence to, to sort of um, ref basically a little bit like musical notes in a, in a score yeah. or words in a dictionary. They, by, by creating um, the contrast or cr the control, you, they define themselves more, more brilliantly. Um, these, all of these works, apart from um, this one and this one, I call, they're, they're, they're the inverted spires, and then all around uh, a piece I'm doing in King's Cross, which is this one here. And this is going to be a, a, a 14 meter high um, sculpture outside of the Francis Crick Institute in October or November. And it's a big um, biomedical lab that's yeah. um, opening, and uh, it's a very exciting building for London. There's 1,200 scientists working in it. So, and one of the, it's called Paradigm, and it's a, essentially it's a stack of of tetroids, of uh, sort of slightly warped tetrahedrons that get slightly bigger each time. And these are structural versions of it. But they're essentially, there are all these different things where they have different growth factors. And again, we've looked at different ways of growing them. This is, these, these new ones, which you've referred to as this one and this one, are these, um, they're called uh, paradigm chamfer, but they have these extreme exploded chamfers where the, the edge, like the, these welded edges on the thing, get, um, get amplified to be as big as the the face themselves, right. so they sort of, so it's sort of um, becoming these much more crystalline stacks, and they're even more precarious. But, but essentially, they're, they're sorry, they're, 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 they're epistemological, actualized metaphors, if you like. They're kind of, they look at the idea of the, the building, or the and the, this idea of building one's argument on certain foundations, and the, the sort of Tower of Babel, or the, the idea of an argument, or the tree of where you grow, you have an assumption of certainty. And then you, know, you build your argument upwards from that point, the tower of knowledge. Uh, what uh, I find fascinating, just there are two things from these which really interest me. One is just a, a hint at the notion of DNA and the helix and, and that kind of the sequence, the DNA, the genome sequence and that sense of life. And mm. so they look very 
kind of yeah. metallic objects, and yet they're about life. And and this one, these two, which you know, are, as you say, not quite part of the series, mm. are really dancing. Seem to be like you know atoms dancing, photons dancing around the centre of the nucleus in an atom. But mm. what interests me and, and is this kind of question with these with these works are they coming are they inverted spars are they coming trying to come down to a single point of knowledge that kind of notion of the mm. the answer to everything that kind of you know the douglas adams 42 is it are you trying to find 42 or is it a postmodern way of looking of saying actually coming from mo the modernist project of there was a single answer mm -hmm. to knowledge actually saying no there are diverse facets and we need to see individual subjective um, facets as equally relevant and rather than being this dogmatic single point of knowledge which goes back as well into religious forms of knowledge or scientific forms of knowledge actually mm -hmm. these seem to hover between the two is this between well, single knowledge and multiple knowledge yeah i mean i think that there is a there's something quite contradictory about the, these works in terms of this idea of time or the linearity of time. Because I, I refer, the, I, I like to, I still to see them as basically stacks in which you start and you go upwards. Go up and upwards. So yeah. time is it's essentially they're going bigger as they go up. But the, the manifolds, time is, I see them as time moving downwards. But with the, with the piece outside, so as these ones, time is, time is sort of going this way with these ones. Where you get and they're getting bigger, but the problem with the ones in the courtyard is that these ones are radiantly traveling outwards, and the smaller ones are the youngest, yeah, and the middle are the oldest. But, um, and that that makes sense in terms of the way that we see trees. These, these don't follow a sort of a natural growth pattern where essentially these would, as they grow up, they would get they would be small at the top, the radical would be at the top, yeah, so you'd sort of flip it and so and I think but the reason I like this is because it creates this sense of precariousness and this sense of of progress, but yet fallibility so the reason it's called paradigms is this idea that if you added another tet of knowledge to the top, it may the whole thing may just collapse and um, what I, what I love is that it's kind of linear time wrapped around by corkscrewing. ครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับครับคร
the dapper light of the sun, this sense of outer growth and the dance, I would say, this movement of these. And then we come to this work, which was Sudley Castle. Yeah. 14, how many years ago? This so this is uh, maybe nearly 10 years, ago. 10 years ago. And this is the sort of starting point of it all. And it was, I regard this sculpture as a failure, but it's probably one of the most important works that I've made in that I've sort of learned so much from it. And it was, it was an extremely naive, sort of kind of foolhardy, sort of bold and stupid sort of a decision of mine yeah. to basically make um, a thousand tetrahedrons made of wood, but not knowing anything about the tetrahedron. I was literally as... I hadn't made a cardboard few and tried to put them together. I literally thought they would. I didn't. I I thought. So how many man hours? Just together. I just hadn't even done any research. It was just completely bold, like yeah. sort of audacious thing to do. And then I turned up at Sudley and said, "I'll just. I'm just going to arrive there and I'm going to make a sculpture out of all these pieces." And I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't do any modelling. I didn't do any. I I had no idea what I was going to. But I was completely flummoxed by this lively, chaotic, sort of irrational thing that just it sort of almost built itself. And I was there, and then the other problem was that it was in this ancient garden. It was made of wood, and it was next to these amazing trees. And it was just looking like a bad version of, the, tree. of the bush behind. Or the, it, was just, it was just like, it was just really, the context was wrong. And then the, yeah. the, the, and it, but I was totally, I was completely bamboozled by it, and it's been something that I've, since then been thinking about and the the other thing is that it still has this radiant property where you've got to grow out from the middle and this one is sort of growing up and around it forms this sort of demi it's called tetris it's called tetris i can't remember what it's called some some macho tetrasphere or something i don't know it's not doesn't have the same poetic name but but the other this one's really interesting in that, that you've got this there is this radiant thing which sort of implies entropy or time yeah. Also, the universe expanding, or, or this just growth—it just implies a center and, and things moving out from there. But because the tets are all the same size, there is also this this lack of hierarchy between them. So yeah. there's a disconnect with this idea of it growing, and then with them also remaining the same size. So I think what the lovely thing about the courtyard is that as it goes out, they get smaller, and there is this sense of, of um, yeah, it, it it describes time. Very and dark. I think I think why we wanted to show this is because for me, it in a sense shows you letting go as you've learned. And this is a bit like going back to what I said about it's not letting it grow. It's like the topiary. The topiary looks beautiful, but actually it's very artificial. It's not natural growth. It's it's ordered, kind of cut and and contained and held, just like this sculpture. And so. For me, it fails... Well, no, I think it's a beautiful piece, but, <laughs> but it fails on, on two levels. One, because, like you, because it, it's wood and sitting in the garden and does it quite work? Is it, is it too illustrative? But the other is because it feels contained. It doesn't have that growth. It has that kind of... It feels too held down and that sense of organic freedom and kind of, I don't know where it's going... Is is not as visible here. It, it seems to be here is a mound of tets. Look what I've constructed, and you don't get that sense of where's it going. I'm not in control anymore, as you say. And I think I think it's a 
beautiful, fascinating piece, and fascinating because it highlights actually the importance in your work of of the kind of growth of the organic nature of it, of that sense of not knowing and irresolution, which is inherent in working with texts, that you you kind of start and you let go, and it, mm. it kind of goes not quite where you, you know, yeah. you control it by saying, right, it's stopping here. Mm. But it's that implication of it goes beyond the frame, as it were. Whereas here it seems contained. It doesn't seem that there's any life going out beyond the frame. As I said, there's this sense of hover between going out and coming in. That kind of, They almost seem to breathe, that kind of, are they expanding or are they contracting? It's as though they're just, you know, despite being incredibly solid and stable, particularly the one in the middle, has that sense of... It's, it's like a, a freeze frame from a film of an explosion, but is it, is yeah. it, it's that moment where it could be a reversed explosion coming back yeah. in, and I think into there's, implosion. There's, um, there's pieces like um, Lash's cube sequence, which, again, is these sort of... We, um, they're like four cubes, and they, they basically expand outwards, yeah. and they're made of four-sided shapes. There's, each cube is made of 48 tetroids, but I sort of see them as a as almost like a Moybridge photograph yeah. of, of, a, yeah. of an explosion or of a, ma a man running. It's like a, their sculpture's caught in a moment, but by, by them being in a sequence, you feel like there's this, they're almost, they're, they are like photographs of a, of a, of a moment in time, an instance. And so these, these pieces, I mean, partly this piece, I wanted to put it in because the show was all made of this weathered steel and bronze and all quite heavy and I wanted to have this similar form but just exploded as this, as this very light it's, it's made of 100% sort of mirrored stainless steel so you, it sort of loses the surface you can't doesn't really have a surface so it, um, it, it sort of it, it mimics its surroundings and, and it feels um, in a sense like creation it feels like an Anselm Kiefer work of this kind of explosion out from abstract nothingness into a solid form but mm -hmm. that solid form is dissolving because the, beneath the paintings are all the, the flakes of the paint which are falling off the painting as they return into mm -hmm. atoms. And you get the same with this, this sense of kind of the solid form exploding, returning to atoms, but also at the same time holding and preparing to return back to a solid form. Mm -hmm. That's circularity, which yeah. is fascinating. What I want to come to now is... is the madness of the work, as it were, for me. It's the kind of... All of them seem to be... Even the, the spires, which are fairly contained, are about the... How many hundreds of hour, man hours and the, and, and the number, the 8,000 tets, that they almost become formless. There's too much to see. Mm -hmm. That they almost become like an image of the sublime, the, kind of the, the 18th century, that they, they are awful in the sense of they, they inspire awe because you can't see it, as, as you said earlier on, you can't see it from a single position. You, you, you're left always seeing through a glass darkly, you're always left looking at this thing which somehow feels untouchable, as it were. And, and, and that's what I find fascinating about the Dapper Life of the Sun, this sense of however much you might think you understand it, you never will, and, and get the full impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredibly beguiling, and I think, I mean, talk, we should probably get Pete to talk about it, because he he's at the, the coalface of, of, a lot of the, a lot of this stuff. I yeah. mean, 
So I don't know if Pete, you want to say a bit about madness and things. The danger of talking to me is that you get um, just a sort of technical, uh, much drier sense of it. But I think it's it's good for you to say them because it's one it's one thing for me to sort of I have these sort of ideas and I I'm very I think I'm very immersed in it in the technology in the technique of it all but the amount of man hours of of the logistics around having getting this from just an idea yeah, to, to it, it's interesting result. hearing you talk about it as macho and uh, sort of privately I think of it as quite gothic not not in a, a sort of atmospheric sense but in that the architecture and the structure are sort of symbiotic. Yeah. You know, you know, they go together. And so if you look at a Gothic cathedral, it has this beauty and this sort of um, this wonder. But if you look at it closer, it's got this incredibly rational structure. So the, the statues are placed on top of the buttresses to give counterbalances to move the forces sweetly down into the foundations. And you, do you see what I mean? That, that and, and, of, and, um, and, and, the, and the Gothic cathedral is actually really good way of seeing these works because the gothic cathedral whilst the architects had some knowledge a large element of the way they were built was let's just push it and hope that it will work and stand up there and the number of cathedrals whose spires slowly gave way or even fell down after, yeah, because they didn't quite work on the engineering principles you know demonstrates and it's that kind of we need flying buttresses because actually without them they're not going to work. It wasn't an engineering solution. It was, a, it was that physical solution of we need to keep these things up. And I think that's, that's fascinating. One question for you b before moving on. When you're confronted with 8,000 tetrahedrons or kind of all this soldiering and, and you and, and, and the others manufacturing are faced with this, do you find yourself becoming lost in that process of manufacturing? Because it's, it's a minimalist, it's almost a repetitive process of doing a very similar thing, you know, for long periods of time. And does it become... Well, I mean, it's important to say I'm not manufacturing. No. And, and that sort of... Um, you know, there's also some really skilled craftsmen who are, you know, incredible at welding. Absolutely. And, and have the sort of... Uh, the infrastructure to take on a project like this. But, uh, I mean, interesting, with Dapple Light and the Sun, because of the um, program, we started cutting the tetrahedra before the design had been resolved. So, <coughs> excuse me. And so we're constantly trying to catch up or keep up with the process. And so from an engineering point of view, the big, the, you know, the big issue is defining the problem. So when you're talking about the fact that you can't actually... Uh, encompass it visually and understand the piece. You know, that is our problem, to understand the piece or to define the piece so that we can then, you know, as an engineer, what we want to do is model it, analyse it, look at the forces. And even though there's this incredible repeat and decay and repetition within it, there are actually locations in it that have particularly high stress that are critical. Right. And, and that's what we're looking for. So we want to define the piece, model it, analyse it, apply loads to it, wind loads. Perhaps someone's going to climb it, and then, which What's which is happen? the critical bolt, and is it big enough? And 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 that goes back to what we've been trying, what we've been teasing out is this kind of this balance between the rational and the irrational, the mechanical and the organic. And 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 for me, there's something in these last series, the photographs about the kind of 
the sublime and the beautiful, that, uh, which, which in philosophical terms you can't put together. But actually in this work, I think somehow seems to this kind of, the sublime formlessness, the sense of you can't contain it, you can't kind of capture it, is this through a glass darkly. And yet, what's incredibly important to you is that each edge, each individual face, has the same amount of attention detail, that, that actually the work is both sublime and yet it's about that beautiful, beautifully constructed yeah. single face as well. I think that one of the things that's really led up, we've got this declared weld along the edge, because these ones have this sharp edge, so the points come together and you get this, um, so these ones have this chamfer, which actually creates a very nice confluence of four tets when they form this sort of nodal con con confluence. Um, confluence, is it? No. Confluence? Con confluence, yeah. Confluence. <laughs> it's funny to hear Pete say that we started the, they start, we ordered, because basically I did exactly the same as I did in Sudley Castle. Really. Yes. Which I ordered, ordered 8,000 tetrahedrons before we knew how we were going to make it, how we were going to put it together, <laughs> if it was going to work structurally. And, and we didn't, we, it's still sort of bold and stupid, but it's sort of, I guess... And it's, it's that kind of it's starting a drawing, isn't it? That this is like, um, these are drawings. They may seem to be big, big designed and engineered structures, but actually it's like, uh, as we've seen with the, the drawings on paper, they are drawings in, in, in the air with metal. You know, kind of not a pencil, but you've got these, you've got these yeah. these metal um, lines which yeah. become your way of drawing in the air. And what I love is that edge there. And you know, if you haven't looked closely at, at the work, that edge, to me, is where this work and I think all your work it kind of contains what your work is about. It's that meeting, it's a really interesting place of, well, of they, meeting between the organic and the But they also the have physical. to be cellular, they have to be independent, because there's, yeah. there's another way of making this, where you just make the skin, and they don't have, they're not autonomous cells that stacked, and we had the same problem with King's Cross, so we, we were looking at other ways of making it with a sort of frame inside. Can, can you cladding. unpack what, what do you mean for the non-engineer so, so they, they all bolt together. Yeah. So they have mating faces, yeah. and they bolt together, and they all can come apart into autonomous cells or, right. or pieces. So they're not... You could, you could, in a way, join two of these tetrahedrons together, and then no one would know that the internal plate is, was there. So you, right. you share a plate, a share a face. I see. But they don't share any faces. They are all autonomous uh, bricks in their own right, or, 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 or cells or units. So it's about this idea of... And this comes, takes us back to the atom again, that, yeah, you know, that, that an atom is an individual, that individual element of the universe, which then kind of combines with other atoms to form objects which are more complex and more fascinating and more beautiful and unique. And, and, and this is what this work in sense is about, is this movement from the individual atom to... The, in a sense, the coagulated object, which mm -hmm. is this unfolding, amazing cloud, tree, crystalline work of art, as it were, and, and a space, as it were, to sit and look and see holes in space, to see the sky as coming down and almost touchable, and mm -hmm. to see those individual elements. and, and 
I think in that way, it completely belies the, the materials. And yet it's dependent. Those materials are weathering themselves. They are themselves mm. atomic. You know, they're affected and changing and developing and growing. Yeah, no, it's quite autumnal now. Which is, um, it's sort of, they go, they're turning orange and sort of it's got a, definitely a sort of... And it's, it's nice just coming back each week and seeing it different. That change. Yeah. yeah. And, and it changes with the sky, it changes with the sun, it changes with whether you walk underneath it, walk around it, walk you know, one way around it, and, and seeing different elements of it. So I want to leave, in a sense, with that image of this amazing work, which kind of leads us both into the summer exhibition and out of the summer exhibition, which sets a way of approaching the summer exhibition this year as a way of looking, not just as a kind of a huge sculpture, but actually shaping the way we look, shaping us to look at small things, shaping us to look beyond immediate perceptions, to look beyond our kind of preconceptions of what something is, and to allow ourselves to see what it might be. So, Conrad, thank you so much for your time and no, for thank you the conversation. For your thank you. We do have just a couple of minutes if anyone has any questions. Thank you, Conrad. I think it's completely inspirational. And I'm talking as a maths teacher. And I'm particularly interested to know whether there was any aspect of your school mathematics <laughs> that led you to ask some of the questions that you now are certainly exploring through your work, ideas of proportion, ideas of similarity, and the journey that you've gone on to produce what are absolutely stunning pieces of work. Well, I definitely did have a... I had a math teacher who was very um, inspiring to me. I was, I, I was really sad not to have him at A-level, but at GCSE, and I did pure one uh, A-level with him before, before I went into my sixth form, but, but he was a very eccentric um, sort of uh, mathematician. He was called Mr. Jones Parry, and he was, um, he was, he was great, but he was, he was just... He was quite an anarchic teacher, and... He used to smoke roll-ups outside the outside the door while he was drawing on the blackboard. And, but he was, um, but uh, he he was, but he just used to talk about ideas, not just about the maths. And he was talk about the shape of the universe and how the fifth dimension would be like being inside a marigold glove. And he would just, um, he was just, it was just really, it was just very um, exciting stuff. And it was just, it was in, interjected in all the. And I was never really very... I wasn't ever going to be a great mathematician, and I, I did it for A-level, and I did physics for A-level, but I quickly... It was much more about the ideas than, the, than all the number crunching. I wasn't ever going to excel at that side of things um, in, in terms of taking it forward as a profession. But, the, um, but yeah, the, there was some... That, I guess that was a, a good example of that. I know it's described as being of weathering steel or weathered steel, but it does seem to be weathering faster than I would expect steel to weather. Have you done something to the steel to make it weather? Um, we, we haven't, actually. It's, um, it, was up, it was outside a bit. Some of it was outside a bit longer than others in, because we, we obviously made it in... Uh, some bits got, were left outside for longer up north in Newark. It's, um, it's copper-impregnated steel, so it will form a rust layer on the outside and then not rust beyond that layer. So it's a structural steel that is designed to go outside, so it won't fall apart. It'll, it'll just, um, it'll just get more orange. It's, um, I think, 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it does it does change quickly. I mean, I think it's the, it's a combination of a bit of the showers and then the sun. It's a very quick. It's probably the quickest time of year for it to, for it to change in many ways. It does. Uh, I saw it on the first day, and I've seen it mm. a couple of times since. But even just seeing it this evening, it seems to have weathered yeah. just in a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it has. I mean, you can accelerate it with sort of acids or lemon juice well, or Coca-Cola. But I mean, with smaller works, we've done that. But with this, would be a lot of a lot of lemons. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Does it have a home to go to after it's been here for the summer exhibition? Um, well, not not yet. No, it's um, it's uh, it's one of the sort of the, the more the sort of slightly annoying parts of being an artist is that you can't sort of just sort of put your paint draft down, so to speak, and relax. You've, the, one of the big problems with big works is the, to create the creative pro to finish the creative process is to find a permanent location or home for it. So because now it's when it's being used and. And it's being, it justifies itself, and it's a. I think, I hopefully, it's a very. Um, it's been very thoughtfully considered as about being quite a civic piece. It's meant to, to be used and sat underneath, or used and, and and enjoyed. It's not a, a sort of isolated thing. That it, it sort of it does have a real sort of social aspect to it, a civic aspect to it in the way that it, or architectural aspect, and it will, um, be used and and part of the infrastructure of a piazza or a square or. A, I, mean, I think it even could go inside in a big atrium, and in some ways, it would be very stunning in an indoor environment, um, in a very neutral white space. But now that it's rusted, it could really. And, it, and again, it just—it's one of the, It's actually. A, I hope it will find a home because it's, it doesn't actually take up any space, except when it's being, <laughs> except when it's being delivered on a lorry when it takes up six juggernauts. But it's um, it's when it, now it's in the footprint is very efficient. It just—it actually kind of. It, so I hope it will sort of it will it will find a permanent location. Thank you very much for coming tonight, and thank you for your questions. There are signed copies of Conrad's publication, which is called The Dappled Light of the Sun, available in the shop. So do go and ask the staff about that. The exhibition in this space and the two adjoining rooms is by Eileen Cooper. It will stay open until 8.30. The summer exhibition is, of course, open till 10 o'clock tonight. And, of course, Conrad's sculpture is outside. It's not just in slides, so please do go and have a look at it. Hopefully the sun is still shining. But please join me in thanking Conrad and Richard for an excellent talk. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.